Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. He weighs both sides of the story and chooses what's right over what's wrong. More Roy Green on the Chorus Radio Network. Welcome back to the Roy Green Show. This is Andrew Lawton in for Roy, listening across the Chorus Radio Network here. The last show that I did for Roy Green last Sunday, we spoke a great deal about what had been unfolding for the week prior in the wake of Charlottesville. And Charlottesville, I made the point last weekend, was not a one-off. It was certainly, I think, a match to a powder keg that had been assembling for quite some time. But a lot of people who have been focusing on the struggles of anti-fascists in their opposition to fascists, if we boil it down to that simple dichotomy, have been seeing a lot of those dynamics since long before Charlottesville, which was certainly a point at which it became very difficult for anyone to ignore if that was what people were doing. And it certainly catapulted Antifa, short for anti-fascists, to a greater level of public awareness. Now, not public understanding necessarily, but public awareness. Now, Antifa is not an organization per se, but rather a network or a mission. And it's one that we see gaining steam in its opposition to fascism or what it deems to be fascism. And that's the uh, nuance that I do want to tackle here. As we look at this book that's coming out on August 29th, Antifa, the Anti-Fascist Handbook, written by Professor Mark Bray, who is a visiting scholar at the Gender Research Institute at Dartmouth College. Professor Bray joins me on the line now. Professor, good to talk to you. Thanks for joining me this afternoon. Thanks so much. You couldn't have had this scheduled for publication at a better time, could you? Not really. Um, actually, it was originally scheduled to come out in September, but they moved it up, so it's actually out right now. Uh, listeners can order it right now, yeah. So let's talk first off about what Antifa is, in your view, because you don't right. look at it just as this network from the last couple of years. You go all the way back to the resistance to fascism, I mean, going back almost a century. Right. So certainly we can see anti-fascism has a century of history dating back to opposition to Mussolini and Hitler, participation in the international brigades during the Spanish Civil War. Now, for a lot of countries, there was a bit of a divide between the end of the end of World War II and the 70s and 80s. This was less the case in Great Britain, where there was more of a continuity because free speech laws allowed fascists and anti-Semites to organize openly in Britain in a way they could not on continental Europe. So you see the, the continuation almost unbroken of militant anti-fascism from the 20s through to the present. In other countries, it sort of re-emerged more in the 80s in Germany, in the 80s and 90s in North America, with a focus on depriving fascists and white supremacists from a platform to organize and promote their politics. In your view, is there a distinction between those who were anti-fascist in the sense of trying to take down or stop Hitler and Mussolini and those who are disrupting campus speakers in 2017? Well, so obviously the term can be used in different ways. Some historians use the term anti-fascist during the, the 30s and 40s simply to refer to anyone who was against Hitler and Mussolini. I use it to trace the trajectory of militant anti-fascism, of a sort of more socialist, anarchist, communist variant on it, 
which is the lineage that we see today. Certainly disrupting campus speakers is a bit of a, uh, a wrinkle on the traditional anti-fascist model, which focused more on organized white supremacists and neo-Nazi groups. But certainly it's, it's a sort of variation on a similar politics around trying to prevent certain forms of um, what some uh, liberal groups would call hate speech from becoming normalized and, and influencing the public discourse. Are they moral equivalents, though, the, Antifa, the Antifa opponents to Hitler and the Antifa opponents to, you know, an Ann Coulter or a Milo Yiannopoulos? Well, certainly it's not the exact same thing. Um, anti-fascist politics are against this sort of far right, broadly construed. So obviously um, Milo Yiannopoulos is not the same as Hitler. But we can see that, that you know, Milo's um, transphobia and misogyny and, and xenophobia, there's a lot of reasons why one would be against him. And, of course, there will be disagreement as to how to respond. The anti-fascist argument in this context is that his words both promote far-right organizing and incite violence against transgender and un- undocumented students. When you bring up that idea of xenophobia, transphobia, whatever these sort of phobias or isms are, it actually gets into something I wanted to ask you about. Because in your book, you mm. really define fascism not just in the way that people conventionally understand it, this you know authoritarian political system, but you really describe it more in line with an ideology. I mean, racism, patriarchy, misogyny, transphobia, xenophobia, cla- all of these isms and phobias. Is Has fascism changed, or is your view that fascism has always been about these things, not just about a system of government? Good question. So fascism is very hard to define both back in the the 20s and 30s and today. And so I think it is worthwhile understanding that, you know, what Mussolini laid out, the way it was interpreted by Hitler and others, is somewhat different from variations on far right today. Um, You know, for example, the Italian fascists were not particularly racist, at least compared to Nazis. Race wasn't a central category for them. Um, But we can see that the, the far-right politics that we see today in Europe and North America have sort of twisted and turned in important ways, which is why anti-fascists don't sort of limit themselves to a textbook view on fascism, but try to combat white supremacy and misogyny, homophobia and transphobia, all these kinds of uh, oppressive uh, belief systems as they're put in organizing throughout their actions. The big problem that I have with the modern manifestation of Antifa is that you can see there is a, a subset of this that believes violence is a legitimate tool. And you go into that in the book, and I, and you say it's mm-hmm. a small sliver, but you recognize that it's there. But you also yeah. look at disruption of speeches, disruption of speakers, platform. No platforming is what it's called in, in sort of the mm-hmm. to, to critics as well as to uh, supporters of it here. And the problem is, though, there is such a, a broad interpretation of what constitutes a, a fascist identity or a fascist ideology that if someone is to say, you know, I support no platforming fascists or I support violence against fascists. Well, if you have such a a broad interpretation of what a fascist is from, you know, Hitler on one extreme to on the other side, someone who has a a marginal conservative viewpoint, can you see why there are problems in the way that this disruption can unfold? Well, uh, what's your example of someone being no platform who has a marginal conservative viewpoint? 
Well, not even necessarily marginal, but an Ann Coulter who is not advocating for violence. She's a conservative speaker. She sells a lot of books. She operates within the confines of the law. She's not a, a violent person. So I would put her certainly without one exa- another example as being on that side. Even further to the center, a professor like Jordan Peterson in Toronto who has said that he is not going to use uh, someone's self-identified gender pronoun. His speeches have been disrupted by Antifa. Well, I don't know about Jordan Peterson, so I can't comment either way on that uh, situation. But Ann Coulter certainly is far right of, of center, uh, far, far among the Republican and conservative uh, end of the spectrum. You know, very xenophobic, very anti-immigrant, very Islamophobic. I mean, there's a lot of negative stuff. But I, the point you make is still a germane point, which is at what point is, is no platforming legitimate or not? And really, the politics is what the issue is, and it's a, it's a political question. It's a matter of political disagreement between different factions that plays out in actual politics. Um, you know, for the most part, historically, as we said, no platforming individual speakers is a small part of this and is more of a recent development than it was historically. But, you know, the argument still stands that there's real violence that comes from these presentations, and they view far-right politics as an uh, enemy to be opposed, not just a, an agreement or disagreement to have through rhetoric. And that's, that stems from the illiberal politics of anti-fascism being composed primarily of anarchists and socialists who are not beholden to sort of classical liberal ideals. Yeah, and by that same token, Antifa fundamentally rejects the idea of free speech as one of those ideals that is inherently flawed, and you acknowledge that in the book here. But when we talk about the justification of violence, I want to read a a passage from your book here. It's that fascist violence often necessitates self-defense, although anti-fascists challenge conventional interpretations of self-defense grounded in individualistic personal ethics by legitimizing offensive tactics in order to forestall the potential need for literal self-defense down the line, and then you say, uh, afterwards, in other words, anti-fascists don't wait for a fascist, fascist threat to become violent before acting to shut it down physically, if necessary. Mm-hmm. Unquote. How is it Correct. justifiable to Antifa to preemptively ex- in, really espouse self-defense when no violence has happened? Well, the argument is that fascist and white supremacist politics are inherently violent and inherently threatening and if allowed to grow, will definitely target people either on a small scale or quite possibly on a larger scale. And so the question is, if you look historically and you agree, for example, that self-defense methods were legitimate at a certain point as regimes uh, such as those uh, put forward by Hitler and Mussolini were growing, if at some point self-defense was legitimate back then, how bad do things have to get before that becomes okay and the anti-fascist answer is, of course, grounded in their perspective of fascism as a political enemy, not just sort of a difference of opinion. Their argument is that you don't let it take even the first step towards normalizing itself and growing in popularity before you confront it. Most of the time that involves nonviolent tactics, such as calling someone's employer or a venue owner to cancel an event, but sometimes it entails self-defense, as you pointed out understood both in an immediate sense and at times in a preemptive sense, the argument being that letting this grow is much worse than stopping it right in the, in the uh, right away. So. Professor Mark Bray joining me on the line, author of Antifa, the Anti-Fascist Handbook, out available now. Professor Bray, thanks for your time today. Pleasure. All right, all the best to you. When we come back, more of The Roy Green Show here on the Chorus Radio Network.